Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the podcast studio. We've got a special episode for you once again. I've got a special guest, which is, this is near and dear to my heart, coming all the way to us via Zoom from Verona, Italy, the motherland of the Varelli family. We're, we're not from the Verona region. We're from Lazio, closer to Rome. But I've got Dr. Giuseppe Maleo on us, uh, on our podcast today. Giuseppe Maleo is at uh, Rossi Hospital. He is in the unit of general and pancreatic surgery, and he is a surgical oncologist. All right. Thank you for joining us, Giuseppe. I'm going to call you Giuseppe because I feel like, you know, we've got Dino and Giuseppe. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we are in Italy. Exactly. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here and to have this conversation with you and with Project Purple. I know your initiative. We know your initiative in Italy. In Italy. Um, it's very nice. It's very commendable what... Uh, association can make can do for patients and for the medical community it's very important for us to have uh, you uh, and your colleagues uh, in at our side you know to to help fighting pancreatic cancer so thank you very much for 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 your effort and for everything you you, you are doing uh, for this terrible disease well, thank you. Um, I, you know, I have said this uh, multiple times. I feel blessed and honored to uh, be leading this charge here, but to work with so many amazing people in the science community that are really on the front lines. You guys are on the front lines. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, you guys deserve more credit than you ever get and will get because uh, you're dealing with the patients and the families and saving lives. We're just blessed to have the opportunity to work with so many amazing clinicians throughout the world, uh, which is really, really wild. So full disclosure, before we get into a little bit of your background, Giuseppe, you are part yeah. of the Precede Consortium, which we help fund, which is uh, 35 plus sites throughout the world. Uh, we've had some of the partners on. Um, we've had uh, actually 13. I just did a podcast and I went through the listing of all the partners that we've already had on the podcast. We've had some international partners. Uh, we just inter uh, did a podcast uh, with Dr. George from... Uh, Canada up at McGill. We've had Dr. Talan, uh, Shelia Golan, excuse me, from Sheba in Israel on the podcast. So uh, bringing another international partner here from Verona. Uh, so we're really excited to have you on. So with that, as we do always on our podcast is we always give our guests the opportunity in the beginning to share a little bit about your background. And I always preface this to say like, you can go as far back, um, you know, talk a little bit about the work you're doing. Um, and with that, the mic is yours. Yeah, thank you, Dino. Well, I'm 41. Um, as you said, I'm a surgeon, I'm a pancreatic surgeon. So my um, elective practice is focused on, on, on pancreas, basically. Uh, I'm not from Verona. I'm from Sicily in southern Italy. And I fell in love with the pancreas when I was a medical student. The last year, I had a chance to work in, in, in a lab. Um, and I was involved in experimental models of acute pancreatitis in the mice and in the rat. Um, so I started studying acute pancreatitis, also, not only in, in experimental models, but also in, in humans. And this was the, yeah, the occasion, the first, the first meeting with the pancreas. Um, in parallel, I had decided to be to pursue a surgical career. So I went to the UK, where I have a um, very um, beautiful experience in Manchester in an HPV unit, so a hepatobiliary and pancreatic surgery unit. Um, I started attending the OR, then I went back to Italy and joined the residency program in surgery here in Verona because. Yeah, I had decided that the pancreas was my area of interest, so it was natural to me to enroll the Verona program. Verona is the premier center for pancreatology nationwide as an exciting um, residency program in, in, in surgery. This 
focused on, on, on pancreatic surgery. So I was able for six years to um, stand on the shoulders of giants of pancreatic surgery. And after that, I enrolled a PhD program in pancreatology for additional three years. And after earning my PhD, uh, I, I was hired as an attending surgeon first. And after a couple of years um, as a, an, an assistant professor of surgery at the University of, of, of Verona. Um, as said before, my, my activity is entirely focused on the pancreas and we treat each and every pancreatic disorder, including pancreatic cancer, pancreatic cysts, uh, neuroendocrine tumors, pancreatitis, and other rare conditions of the pancreas. Working in Verona is really exciting because there's a um, an exceptional and very wide group of, of people, more than one, 100 doctors, 100 professionals who are dedicating their entire career to, to pancreatology. So there's a surgical group, gastroenterological group, radiologists, anatomopathologists, molecular biologists. There's a very wide group um, that mixed together and is able to provide multidisciplinary care and provide uh, cutting edge research uh, to improve uh, patient care in a tangible way from bench uh, to the bedside. We have um, plenty of international collaboration. We have a very strong research network. And yeah, it's very exciting to work here. And that's fantastic. And Above all, uh, it's although pancreatic cancer is pancreatic cancer, we all know that. So, yeah. Well, it's I, pretty sad. I mean, it's it's difficult for us, even from a psychological standpoint, to be so uh, 360 days a year in in this environment. You know. But at the same time, it's very rewarding because when you when you work in a high volume center that can provide the best care, you see tangible results and you feel you are improving the you know the life of the patients you look after, and this is very rewarding. Although I I have to admit that at the same time it's very difficult to be um, fully focused on this kind of disease that is terrible for patients, but is very hard to deal with also for medical professionals, especially when it's the only activity, the only disease you, 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 you look after, you know. So, so I want to just share with our audience. So, you know, we, we always try to vet our uh, guests out and do some research ahead of time. So I, I think you're very humble uh, in your background here, but I just want to read some things and, and I'm going to go somewhere with this. So, you graduate cum laude from in 2006 from University of Messina. Then you go to Manchester, uh, but and you started, uh, you obtained your certification in general surgery at University of Verona in 13. And then if we look at your history, you've performed more than 1,400 procedures. You're 41 years old, and we'll take the last year out, so we'll say 40. More than 500, actually, yes. Yeah, and then more than 500 yeah pancreatic resections. So yeah. in, let's say in 20 years, so we're, we're, we're condensing, well, probably less than 20 years because last year with COVID, there really wasn't much going on. And then you throw in, you know, the, the time that you have to get out through um, learning and everything. You've got more than, you've authored or co-authored more than 200 full text papers in peer reviewed journals. Uh, yeah. Factors, uh, his impact factors exceeds a thousand, and his H index is forty-one. Google Scholar. Furthermore, he is an author of seventeen book chapters and participated to more than fifty national and international meetings as a delegate or a faculty member. I'm going to fast forward here um, in your bio. Uh, really amazing. In in 2019, the European Pancreatic Club, Youp. Uh, Pi Awards, uh, an honorary uh, appointment for clinical or basic scientists under 45 with a brilliant career in field of pancreatology, um, along with many other accolades. So that's a lot of work in a very short period of time. So my question, I know you mentioned, you know, you were in school and you, you just, you know, the, the pancreas, but why 
pancreatic cancer? Was there, a, was the, the, the light bulb go off? Was there a family connection maybe? Um, I know why I do what I do, but I'm always fascinated. You know, you've poured your life over the last 20 years into this disease, like unlike many people that we've seen or had on the podcast, um, not disrespecting anyone, but this is a, a, you know, this is a life's worth of work in less than 20 years. You know, if we look at 2013 to where we are here in 2020, so in seven years, why pancreatic cancer? Uh, the first, first consideration coming to my mind, you should talk about that with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> it's my wife, you know, I've been with, with my wife since we were 16. Oh, God bless. So it's, it's a lot. Yes, God bless. And yeah, she supports me a lot. Uh, and maybe, not maybe, she surely... Um, she is listening. I guarantee she'll yeah. listen to this. So no, you, no, she's not listening. She's no, not she, listening. She will listen to this, though, once it goes on the air. <laughs> uh, uh, she's very important for, for, for my job. Uh, for my activity, but sometimes it's difficult to balance uh, working life and family, especially when you have kids, you know, but yeah, I was joking and just for saying that my wife always tells me my head is, my brain is, is working towards pancreatic cancer, even when I'm home, even at night, sometimes at night I wake up and I think, oh yeah, what are you doing? I was thinking about the paper I read yesterday, and about the research paper we are preparing, you know, this is some something that uh, surrounds you uh, 24 hours a day, uh, 365 days a year. It's it's a full commitment. It's kind. It, it's a mission. Yeah, it's really a mission. Uh, why pancreatic cancer? It's I don't know. Again, I fell in love with with the pancreas uh, through pancreatitis. Right, so it's a very serious condition, but it's something benign. Uh, but when I came to Verona and enrolled my residency program, I, you know, some, I understood that the real problem in pancreatology, real issue we are facing uh, in, in our days, in this these days, is pancreatic cancer. You know, and honestly of 100 patients we see 60 are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And all of you know, know this pancreatic cancer is, the incidence is increasing, middle age is decreasing. So it's gonna be a, a, a big problem for, for healthcare in general. Um, the more you go into that, the more you somewhat fall in love with this because it's very intriguing. You have a very hard to treat disease with a very difficult biology, uh, very difficult mechanistic processes behind that are not, not fully understood. It's a very difficult disease to treat surgically. It's, it's technically demanding. Operations are formidable. Uh, it's summarizing is a, it's a difficult thing, you know, to handle from any aspect. And this fascinated me a lot. Uh, so it was natural for me to focus on that and to commit my whole working life uh, to this disease. Uh, yeah, well, that's it basically. I'm the answer is because it's difficult and I like difficult things. Well, we're we're thankful to have you in this space. So please uh, <laughs> take that as a as a compliment. I mean, it's uh, it, it's always interesting to me um, why people get engaged in the space. As you said, it's it's a very complex, dynamic disease, and I think that turns off some people. You know, and here in the United States, there's not a lot of money in it um, too, which I think is another big issue, you know, that, you know, these young researchers, as you come out, um, uh, as researchers and clinicians come out 
early on in their careers, they have to take a career path. And sometimes, you know, they do look at longevity and, and a lot of times, you know, monetarily, like, where's that going to take them? You know, where's the money in, in certain cancers here in the United States? I know internationally it's different, right? In certain countries, it's a, it's a different dynamic, but I know I've heard from, you know, here in the United States, you know, breast cancer, you know, is a, is a billion dollar business where there's lots of funding and from the government, from the private sector. So it's a lot easier to create a career path in that cancer than it is maybe in other cancers that don't get as much funding or don't get as much awareness. So I appreciate you sharing with our audience, um, you know, the reasons and, and it's awesome to hear that, uh, because I love hearing the stories and, and just people motivated by the challenge. Um, if it was easy, everyone would do it as I, I think someone had once said, you know, um, but there's, there's, uh, there's just like a common thread in, in a lot of people that are fighting day in, day out that are just nonstop. And, you know, when you said you wake up at night and think about things like that, that hit me because that's how like I am. Like I'll wake up at night and, you know, I got sheets here, you know, I just write stuff out. I got books at my, uh, by my, my bed where, you know, if I have to write something out or on my phone, it's like a constant nonstop that it's always in your head. Yeah. So I, I, I know what you mean, you know, and that, uh, that mindset, you know, is like, what can we do? What else can we yeah. do? What are the other things? So it's just awesome to hear that. Yeah. It's a, it's a state of mind. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I want to talk clearly you're in Verona, Italy. We're here in Connecticut, the United States. There's some major differences between the healthcare. And I, I don't want to necessarily go down that road, but you know, in terms of disease, and you've been, you know, you're collaborating with colleagues all over the world. Um, you've spent time in the UK doing work, and then now they're in Verona for quite some time. Talk a little bit about the differences in Italy with the disease. And I know we before we hit record, you were talking about some of the challenges, which we'll get to, you know, with COVID and just availability. But do you see, I mean, we were talking about this before we hit record too. I mean, Italy's got an older population. Um, there's differences in, you know, lifestyle. There's differences in diet. So, as a clinician and what you see from patients, is there a major difference with the disease? I mean, the disease is the disease, but are there things that you see differently in Italy for say, than that we would maybe see here in the United States? Oh, and that's a loaded question. Is, I know it's a hard question. It's a, it's a hard question because I mean, to answer, you should have experience in both systems, you know, you have to see patients in both countries to compare. Yeah, maybe Italy has a healthier lifestyle in terms of food. Uh, maybe Italians are thinner, lower BMI than in the United States. But honestly, I feel that there aren't a lot of differences in terms of epidemiology, in terms of disease process, in terms of disease presentation, diagnosis, and also prognosis, I think. Um, as I was saying before, what strikes me at the moment is the fact that we are seeing a lot of young patients, a lot of young patients, and this is an actual, this is a true phenomenon. What's young? Uh, what is young? Like what age group are we talking about? There's not a clear definition on about what is early onset pancreatic cancer. It's cancer um, diagnosed between 50 and 55 years, let's say so. Uh, we've seen a lot of patients with pancreatic cancer in their 40s and even in their 30s. I'm not saying rare pancreatic tumors. I'm saying PDAC. I'm saying pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. I'm sure there's some form of referral bias because we are um, a national referral center. So again, People travel 
to Verona from throughout the country. So there's, there's clearly referral bias. Our numbers do not reflect the actual epidemiology of pancreatic cancer in Italy. Mm -hmm. But looking back at my practice 10 years ago when I was a resident, we didn't see that many young patients with pancreatic cancer. We didn't see that many patients with pancreatic cancer. This is reality. We're, I think that in 2021, we operated on 10 patients less than 40 years old with pancreatic cancer. That is incredible. It's worrisome. And I don't know how to explain, uh, but it's happening. So that's why we say that pancreatic cancer is a social emergency. Uh, that's the most uh, intriguing and at the same time worrisome aspect I'm seeing in my practice. Uh, I try to ask about these colleagues overseas, also in Far East, like in Korea, in Japan, in the United States, and the answers are mixed. Some of them answer, yes, I'm seeing the same. I'm seeing a lot of young patients with pancreatic cancer. Some others say, no, actually, uh, I've not witnessed any major change in the pattern of presentations um, regarding the age of, of patients at the disease onset. Uh, regarding other differences, it's Western world. So apart from food, I don't think there, that there are major differences in smoking habits between Europe and United States, or also in lifestyle, working environment. It's pretty much the same. Um, yes, environmental factors play uh, a major role in promoting uh, tumorigenesis. But I don't know, again, what is the root cause of pancreatic cancer maybe lies in, in genomic alterations that arise many, many years before the disease onset. Uh, I mean, this is demonstrated actually that the uh, biologic history of pancreatic cancer is very long, that the disease onset at the cellular level uh, occurs even 10 years before a clinical diagnosis, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I see a lot of patients who complain about the fact that they had never smoked, never drank, uh, never had bad habits or particular lifestyle. Said, I, I'm sporty, I'm, I'm thin, uh, I don't smoke, I eat well, and I have pancreatic cancer, and I'm 45. What's going on here? And you just have no answer. <laughs> you know, so there's much effort to be done to understand in that the root causes of pancreatic cancer. It's going to take years, but I think we will get there. I'm, I'm confident we will get there someday. Um, yeah, that's it. When you when you see a lot of patients, when you work in in, in a center, uh, seeing let's say two thousand patients per year. You appreciate all the nuances, you know. Statistically, we, we, we say the tail of distribution. So you see, you see a lot of exceptions, a lot of strange cases, uh, a lot of unexpected things that make you think about the disease and about particular aspects of what happens to these patients. And yeah, and that's part of the intriguing process I was talking about. <coughs> before yeah that, but that's a little scary though uh giuseppe you know to think like you know I, I i taking notes here you know you think about like you said like social emergency and you think from a social aspect you know when you start to see 30 40 year old people coming in with this type of disease and i know our listeners know the disease and many of them follow us because they've been impacted so think about that you know being 30 or 40 years old and having to deal with this is just really that's just like my stomach dropped, you know, that you've saw, seen that many cases, you know, in this short spirit, short span of time. Um, it's just really, 
interesting. You know, I know here sometimes the, the saying is, oh, something is in the water, right? So is there something, you know, that we don't know about, you know, environmentally, socially? Um, I, I guess this leads me to my next question is, you know, and, and this goes into the Precede Consortium where you have clusters of families with these high risks with genetics. So let's talk a little bit about that and the work you guys are doing there, because I know you guys are involved. We've, we've already seen plenty of patients being enrolled into the database. So that's been a focus as well with the practice there um, in Verona as well. Yeah, sure. Thank you. This is a very exciting field because, uh, you know, the two main challenges are, you know, understanding uh, the mechanisms behind pancreatic cancer, and the other one is early diagnosis, you know, prevention and early diagnosis. And, you know, familial pancreatic cancer is, um, you know, the subfield when, where you can apply these principles uh, better. Uh, we have a structured program of surveillance for Irish patients. Uh, we are members of CAPS Consortium, the Cancer of the Pancreas Screening Consortium led by Johns Hopkins by Mimi Canto. Uh, this running has been running for, for, for years now. Uh, we have a uh, uh, very well-structured Italian consortium under the auspices of the Italian Association of Pancreatology, of which I am the current secretary. Um, there are I think more than 15 centers in Italy and some others are joining uh, that are uh, surveilling patients at high risk. Uh, here in Verona, we have nearly 100 families under surveillance. I think more than 100 families under surveillance. We have a dedicated outpatient clinic led by my colleague, Salvatore Paiella, who is also a member of the Precid Consortium. Um, we dedicate a lot of effort to it. We collect blood. Uh, apart from the Precid protocol, we collect blood. We have uh, a biobank for all pancreatic cancer patients, and especially for high-risk families. Um, we offered uh, we offer uh, free MRI for uh, patients enrolling in our surveillance protocol thanks to uh, uh, to government fundings. Uh, we were given to you know carry out um, this kind of protocol. And yes, and we are proud part of the Precede Consortium. We very much believe in this initiative uh, led by Diane Simeone in, uh, in New York City. Um, yeah, what else? So do, uh, do you... As surgeons, what, my, a consideration I made as, as a surgeon is that uh, thanks to the widespread use of new adjuvant treatment, uh, you know, our surgical boundaries have expanded, have expanded and um, now we operate uh, more frequently on more advanced cases anatomically because they did respond to chemotherapy because they were at least stable following induction treatment. So more, we more often perform vascular resections, venous resections, complex surgeries, and whatever. But as a surgeon, I would prefer to operate an early tumor. All right, a very small tumor that's been found in its early phase, at least the clinical early phase. Uh, yes, upfront, after new adjuvant treatment, we can discuss about that. But in general, I want to operate on early tumor rather than performing very complex operation on tumor that are locally advanced, that are spread into surrounding vessels and whatever. So even for a surgeon, early diagnosis and picking tumors when they are in their early phase, at least clinically, because we know that even a small tumor can metastasize, 
can be very aggressive uh, clinically, but even from our point of view, technically, I mean, it's important to diagnose pancreatic cancer as earliest as possible. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, with Italians, and I know there's certain cultures uh, throughout the world where, you know, and I'm going, this is going back now genetically, you know, thousands of years. Um, but I know there are certain cultures where we do see, and I, I, I the term is not, uh, you know, there were family bloodlines that were, were intermingled, I guess, yeah, uh, because yeah, yeah. of, you know, generations, thousands of years ago because of wars and everything that happened. So we see, mm -hmm. I know with like the Ashkenazi Jews, there's this high prevalence of BRCA. I know within Europe, there's also other, you know, parts of Europe where we do see high prevalence of genetic mutations throughout certain family bloodlines. So in Italy, do you guys see a prevalence of like the BRCA gene or other genes that you've kind of identified in certain regions of the country are just at like high prevalence for, you know, cancer, whether it's pancreatic, breast, uh, prostate, you know, any of these other cancers that we know are linked to these genetic mutations? Yeah, um, a couple of months ago, um, it was published in, I think it's in ESMO Open, uh, a paper on the prevalence of BRCA mutations in Italian patients. It's a very controversial paper. I'm not commenting on that, otherwise we open uh, <laughs> a, a big discussion about this, uh, probably the methods and the way that paper was carried out are this it's not 100 sound mm -hmm. but they found a very high prevalence of brca mutation in, in italy nearly nine percent um a bit more in the young that was expected um i'm not aware of any particular italian region where the prevalence is higher or any ethnic group within our country with a higher prevalence of BRCA mutation. Um, we uh, did a um, huge review of the whole literature and performed the network meta-analysis, um, reviewing um, the prevalence of ERCA mutation and other homologous recombination genes in the in the published literature. It's a multinational effort we did with the Glasgow group, Professor Bianchi group with Talia Golan. Um, it's under review. I can't disclose the results. It's very exciting. It's uh, it's under review in a very high tier journal. Finger crossed. I hope to have a new podcast with you and, and discuss about the results of this paper in the next future. <laughs> awesome, awesome. We'll have to get we'll have to get Tali on here as well. We'll do we'll do the the, the three of us. Uh, with uh, yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah. Why not? She's, why not? No, if when the when the the public uh, when the publication comes out, we'll have to have Talia and you back on together. Why not? Why not? That we can have great. a new uh, a new podcast with yeah. myself, Salvatore Paiella, uh, Raffaella Casolino, who is a PhD student in Glasgow from from Verona, and Talia Gola. Uh, it would be a, a great I, pleasure. Yes, I'm gonna, I'm if gonna you hold, want to organize that, you will be there. I'm sure. going to hold you to that, and I'm going to message Talia about that as well. So I'm going to message her uh, offline because uh, I know her well. And uh, all gonna, right, gonna... I can send you the details of the paper once it gets accepted. Let's hope so. I love <laughs> Again, it. Again, finger crossed. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. So with, I want to talk about and staying on this subject with awareness in Italy. And you mentioned like you get referrals from all over the country and you talked about all the centers that are, you know, now engaged in um, the Italian Association of uh, Pancreatology. Has that been a challenge to, I mean, when people get sick, I, I just know, like I, I look back and maybe I'm stereotyping here, but you know, we, we were talking before offline before recording about my uncle, you know, he's 84, like, you know, he lives on a farm in, in Frosinone and you know, he, they don't go to the, like, they don't go to the doctor. They only go like when they're really, really sick. And I think that could be said in, and it's not stereotyping. I'm not trying to stereotype Italians, you know, here in the United States, there's old people, you know, when they're 80 years old, like they get sick, they don't want to go to the doctor. 
maybe I, I certainly think sometimes people know how sick they are and they just are avoiding, you know, the inevitable or, you know, the news that they know is probably not going to be positive. But has it been a challenge in Italy with pancreatic cancer? Us in this community know the severity and know that like, hey, the earlier that we get to this disease, like you said, it's easier to operate at stage one and then at stage, you know, two plus, right? You know, yeah. stage three. So has that been a struggle in the culture and in the communities in Italy to heighten the awareness, to bring this to people's attention, whether it's genetics or, you know, like symptoms, like we still battle here in the United States, you know, with the symptoms, like, Hey, if you, and, and, you know, if you, if you have back pain or if you have abdominal pain, if you lose weight rapidly, if you turn yellow, you know, get this checked out right away. So has that been kind of a challenge in Italy? I think from what I uh, see on the internet, on Facebook, on Twitter, I think it's pretty much the same as in the US. So over the last 10 years, there have been uh, several um, awareness campaigns uh, promoted by patient associations. Uh, there are uh, at least four or five in Italy. Uh, like Project Purple, so fully committed, fully dedicated to spread, to raise awareness about pancreatic cancer. Um, so yes, I think it's pretty much the same. Um, pancreatic cancer is relatively rare, uncommon as a, as, as a tumor with an incidence in Italy of 10, 12 cases per 100,000 people a year. Uh, but as you know, it's projected to be the second cause of cancer-related death by 2040. Uh, so yes, association, uh, associations are committed to spread word uh, throughout the country about the symptoms, about the fact that pancreatic cancer uh, has no specific symptoms that if you have, let's say, an unexplained weight loss or back pain or uh, malabsorption, malabsorption or bad digestion or jaundice, you should go as early as possible to the doctor to be seen and to be assessed, to be checked for, for pancreatic cancer. So I don't think that there are major differences um, as compared to the United States. Um, our problem at the moment is the big discrepancy in terms of, I wouldn't say healthcare quality, but the, in terms of distribution of high volume center um, throughout the country, because the biggest centers for pancreatology are located in Northern Italy, mm -hmm. in Verona, in Milan, in Pisa, um, yeah, in Rome too, but, there's a lack of expertise maybe in southern Italy. So we see um, heavy uh, healthcare migration, we say, translating literally from, Itali from Italian, from southern Italy to northern Italy. Italy is not US, it's, uh, it's much smaller. So you can go from one side to the other of the nation in by flight in one hour and a half. So uh, it's easy for people to move around the country and reach, they say, excellent centers for, for, for pancreatology, for pancreatic surgery. Maybe that's not right because, uh, you know, experienced centers should be distributed, you know, throughout the country and people have the right to receive the best care uh, near home. So there's um, a project um, a plan uh, to uh, develop a high volume center regional hubs, even in southern Italy. This is pretty difficult. You know, it, it's going to take years. But yeah, this is the plan. This is the major challenge that the Italian community is facing regarding the care of pancreatic cancer, providing you know equity in the in the resource allocation and equity in access to, to the best care. Uh, other difference is that Italy has um, 
a fully public healthcare coverage. So we don't have insurance, healthcare insurance, as you uh, may know. Uh, healthcare is free for uh, as a universal coverage. We say so. Healthcare is free for everyone, regardless of income, regardless of social status. Uh, there's a um, form of copayment for a uh, uh, number of procedures, mainly diagnostics. But I mean, surgery is free for for everyone. So people tend to to go to excellent center because you know by law they are free to choose the hospital uh, where they can receive care so it's normal they try to go to the best centers and this creates a discrepancy because um, high volume center becomes uh, bigger and bigger over the years and smaller centers do not have the chance to grow to improve uh, I mean, I'm happy about that because I work in the biggest center nationwide. So our surgical volumes are improving, are increasing yeah, over the years. But this is a system that can't stand, you know, uh, because this requires uh, more and more resources uh, in our center that you know, we can just hold. You know, we are imploding if you keep on going like this. So our challenge is to balance the quality of care and the volumes uh, throughout the national territory and develop and build high volume centers, even in, the, in, in, in specific areas of the country, namely Southern Italy, they are not fully covered in this respect. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I know this could be like a whole podcast on itself with, you know, how do you do yeah. that? Right. And so, you know, I, I, just being Italian and, you know, being there, I've been there often. Um, and my family lives, I guess you would say central, but closer to the south. And, you know, the north, it's almost like, you know, the north has always been the, the you know, Milan, where, you know, you have fashion from Florence and wealth and the agriculture, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, to me, because Italy is not a big country, as you said, no. you know, you can you can hop on a plane from the south and get to the north in a, in a very quick period of time, but the discrepancy from, you know, healthcare, from wealth, from agriculture, you know, is just really fascinating. I mean, there's I know there's been a lot of documentaries and books written about that, like just that, you know, you go, I mean, you could, I've driven, I mean, when the last time I was in Italy, we drove from Rome all the way up to Florence, up to Venice, and like, it, it's not that long, folks. Um, you know, it no, doesn't, doesn't it's take a couple that, of hours. Yeah, but the, the discrepancies are like night and day, you know, from Naples to Milan, I mean, it's like- Absolutely. The, the, from an absolutely. economic from, standpoint, from, from a cultural- standpoint, yeah. absolutely. Economic, cultural, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Two different nations. Yeah. It, it's, it's beautiful, but at the same time, it's, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, it's weird when we talk, you know, about <laughs> cancer and access to care, right? Like this is like, yeah. you know, life or death for people, you know, it's really, you know, and that's something that we talk about often here in the United States is- similar issues. Um, I, cause I think here in the United States, we have that challenge too, uh, Giuseppe, where, you know, if you live in the New York area, yeah, you get to choose from Dr. Simeon, Dr. Chabot, you know, the guys at Sloan Kettering, the guys at Cornell, uh, or you can go yeah. up to Boston and, you know, which is three hours, you know, to Mass General or Dana-Farber, or, you know, you've got, but then now if you live Brigham, in- Brigham, man. Yeah, dude. Brigham, yeah, you Whatever. got all of them. Or you can go Beth down- Beth Israel. Yeah. yeah, Beth Israel. But if, if you live in Indiana and in Southern Indiana, like you don't have great access, you know, or if you live in Western Nebraska, you know, it's eight hours to go to Omaha or it's, you know, eight hours to get to Denver, you know? So it's really fascinating, you know, like there are parts of the country. And then, you know, if you live in Louisiana, it's the same, you know, there's, the, it's really fascinating how I think here in the United States, I've always said to people that live in this area where we live so close to New York is like, Hey, we've got great access to care because we know from, 
our standpoint, that we deal with patients in other parts of the country that, you know, it's an eight hour drive just to get to a, a high volume center. And I think something you said, you know, high volume, and that's something that, you know, uh, is really critical. And I know we talk about this regardless of whether you live in Italy or if you live in here in the United States, seeing a high volume specialist and people that deal with this that are so entrenched that think about this day, evening, and night like you do <laughs> is really critical. And they're, they, you know, that's, that's really uh, important. I got two questions left for you. One is I want to talk about, you know, we talked about this before we hit record. So much has changed in the last year. I mean, before we hit record, you know, it's been a full year since we've been dealing with COVID. You dealt with it personally. But just talk about, you know, Italy's been on the news early on because it was, you know, the the world epicenter, it seemed, you know, it started to get really bad in Italy before, you know, it traveled to Spain and then came here to the United States. And Italy was so much on the news here in the United States because of the mortality going up, up, up and up because of COVID. But how have you guys dealt with COVID? You know, I know we talked a little bit about, and I want you to share that with our audience. Thank you. This has been one year and still I have no answer for that. It's, it's really weird. It's, it's uncanny what happened in the last 12 months. Uh, there have been three waves um, in Italy. The first between uh, February and April 2020, and that was really harsh. Uh, it's really bad. Um, as regards our activity, um, we shut down for more than one month, so zero procedures. And because our operating theater were transformed into makeshift ICU, patients were overflowing, people were literally dying in emergency room in the streets. It was an incredible situation. So although the government uh, was somewhat committed to preserve oncologic procedures, there was no way to maintain the volumes and, and to provide care for, for each and every people. And with any form of cancer that requires immediate intervention. Uh, so one thing we say is that we should add to, to the count, uh, the, a great number of people, uh, an unknown number of people who died of their cancer because they did not have access uh, to care. And this is, this is real. This did happen, actually. This did happen. And also when we uh, reopened our service, we had to choose what people uh, to operate and who to operate and who to send back to chemotherapy or to radiation because we we had constraints, you know, in, in, in resources allocation. We were not given back uh, the full amount of operative slots we had before. So we had to make choices. And that's what, that was really incredible. You know, that, that was crazy because uh, how can you say yes to, to a certain patient and say no to another one based on what? Based on age, based on cancer stage, based on fitness for surgery. And hmm. um, yeah. You discuss patients at the MDM uh, in, in your multidisciplinary meeting, but in the end, whether the, this, this choice is made by one person or by a committee, the choice is the choice. So we had to deny surgery to, to a lot of patients because they were, let's say, too advanced or, or because they did require uh, vascular resections and they were on their 80s, on their 70s, and that was crazy. Um, second wave was between November and December. We did not shut down, but our activity was cut by 50%. So normally we have 12, 14 operating slots per week. Uh, we were given five to seven. And so we were back to this problem, who to operate, who to select, 
discard uh, low-grade pathology like cystic tumors or neuroendocrine tumors postponed to we didn't know when um, up to the point that we were uh, we, we, we did form a, a bioethical committee with um, uh, legal medicine services. We contacted the bioethicist. Uh, we, we wrote a document that was sent to the uh, hospital management, to the politicians, you know, to raise awareness about this phenomenon that we were not able as the biggest oncologic service for pancreatic cancer nationwide, we were not no more able to provide care for all patients who were referred to, to, to our service. And another third way that is still ongoing. Uh, again, our activity is being cut by 50%. Projections are pretty good because uh, the vaccine campaign is, is now proceeding, although, as you may know, we have problems with AstraZeneca vaccine that's been withdrawn in Italy, in Germany, and in the UK. But by the way, a um, uh, considerable number of, patients, of, of people in their 80s and 70s uh, received vaccine. Um, so we hope that in a couple of months, the majority of the population will receive their vaccines and then by summer, we, we, we can see the light. I mean, although uh, I, I don't want to make any projection because over the years I learned that any projection <laughs> in the end is wrong. It's, the course of this pandemic is somewhat unpredictable. Uh, so I just don't want to say anything about this. I just hope that this stops as soon as possible because, yeah, that's terrible. That that's it has been terrible and it's been terrible actually for us, for our families. Uh, you know, as normal human beings and as and as medical professionals and as surgical oncologists and as surgical oncologists involved in the care of one of the worst cancers. So I hope it stops as soon as possible, really. Thank you for sharing. I mean, it, it's so crazy to hear, um, you know, the, 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 that you had to kind of pick and choose, you know, at, at some point, you know, who is eligible for surgery and who can wait or just, you know, goes back on chemo. I know that was, uh, you know, we didn't have a, a long hold, but I know at many of the centers in New York, I know there was like two weeks, three weeks, almost a month that I think they were not performing elective surgeries because of COVID you know, similar situation, but I think those patients, you know, if they had the means, they could fly to Houston and go to MD Anderson and, you know, have a procedure done, which is a little bit of a, of a yeah, challenge. Surely, surely many patients were, were, were referred back, but went back to their local centers. Maybe they, they have been operated uh, at the local center, but it, it has been difficult to track yeah. everyone and to know about the fate of, of any patient that was, um, in waiting list here, yeah. for sure, many of them have been operated in their local centers. But then you have to see the outcomes. Then, yeah, I think we will figure out what happened in the couple of years. Yeah, exactly. And and there was a very fascinating. I don't know if you caught it. Uh, it came out yesterday afternoon here in the United States, but the New York Times did an article, and I, I'll send it to you offline, but our listeners uh, can look for this. And it talks about that in terms of you know, COVID and putting off screening, surveillance, and procedures, and the impact that that has on the cancer community as a whole, not just pancreatic cancer. In there, they did mention, they did write about someone who unfortunately passed away during the pandemic who was battling pancreatic cancer, but they also talk about breast cancer and colon cancer. Um, you know, and, and that's, as you just said, you know, I think in the, in the coming years, we're going to see data that points to, you know, people who held off procedures, people who held off going to doctors. Um, and the reason was the COVID pandemic, which is just so, so crazy, so sad to think of that, that the impact that this pandemic has had 
on our medical community um, with the patients and the clinicians trying to save lives and people trying to fight for their lives. It's just really fascinating. I, I think it's going to be years until we really kind of fathom and look at the data and realize the the damage that this has done. Um, you know, unfortunately, Absolutely. you know, the awareness groups, the clinicians, we, we know it because we're in it every day. And we've been saying something here at, at, Project Purple, that pancreatic cancer isn't canceled, even though everything else is canceled. You know, this hasn't been canceled. You know, our job isn't done. Um, and that's something that we just have to kind of continue to remind everyone about. I've got one last question for you. This is a hard question. It's your opinion. I always preface this and say it's loaded because it's a hard question. How do you define the term pancreatic cancer? What's your definition for it? There's no right or wrong. It's your answer. Oh, this is really a hard one. Oh, really, I don't know the definition of pancreatic cancer. Oh, I don't know. I mean, that's very hard. From from a medical standpoint, it's pretty simplistic, maybe, but it's probably one of the hardest challenges for, for the stakeholders, you know, for medical professionals, for, for all the people who is interested in, in, in this field. Um, I like to label pancreatic cancer, as I said before, as a social emergency. I like very much this definition because it's, it's a definition that applies at the population level. It's not strictly medical, but it's something that even, uh, let's say, common people can understand. And, well, I don't know what to say, actually. You, you challenged me a lot. With this question, well, that, uh, I think that's a you know <laughs> you answer it perfectly because that's the answer you know in terms of how you see it. And I know you you mentioned you know the social emergency, and from a clinical clinical standpoint and in your position, that's how you see it. So that that's why we ask this question. There, we you know we know the the medical definition right, but it's also fascinating yeah. to just I mean. And, and I hope we've done this in this podcast, and I think we, we've done this, is, you know, to share your work, the body of work that you're doing, and, and what it's like to be in the field in Italy and, and battling this thing called pancreatic cancer. Um, you know, so that that's the ultimate goal here, and I, I think you answered it perfectly. Thank you. So <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Much, thank you for the time today. Uh, Giuseppe, and my last thing, and this is real easy, you know, there might be someone listening at home, wherever they're listening to this podcast, they could possibly be in Italy. Hopefully my cousins listen to this podcast, my family, I hope they do. Uh, but if someone wants to connect with you, I know you're on Twitter. What's the best place for people to connect with you? Maybe learn more. Maybe they have family in Europe and, you know, someone might be battling pancreatic cancer and it's a lot easier to get to Verona than it is to get to the United States. If someone has questions on the work you're doing, where's the best place for them to connect with you? Surely Twitter. Yes. And the easiest way is email. Uh, my uh, professional email can be found on the, on the internet easily. And so if anyone wants to connect with me, I'm happy to share views, opinions, whatever. In, in about pancreatic cancer, just contact me anytime. I'm, I'm always available. Awesome. Uh, it's Twitter and, uh, and email. Um, I am in Facebook also, but I have to say, I don't use it very much while I'm very frequently on Twitter. Awesome. And your Twitter handle is at G-I Maleo, M-A-L-L-E-O. Yes. Perfect. Correct. Perfect. Well, Giuseppe, thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you for all you do for the pancreatic cancer community as a whole worldwide. We are excited to have you and the team, Salvatore and everyone else there in Verona with the Precede Consortium. Really excited. I hope one day 
to get to meet you in person. I was hoping to be in Italy this past summer, but you know, COVID derailed that. I don't know if it'll be 21 because yeah. it doesn't look very good right now, but maybe it'll be 22. And uh, you know, we'll have to have uh, a cappuccino or espresso there in Verona, maybe even some sure. pasta. <laughs> sure. I very much look forward to it. <laughs> I, I'm going to put it in the calendar. I'll, I'll make sure to, to make that happen. Great. And thank you very much for inviting me. And thank you very much for everything you do to support patients and to support the medical community. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a great effort. It's a great effort, really. Thank you, Giuseppe. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear today, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Go ahead and share our podcast. Until next time, please be safe. And as we say here at Project Purple, that's a wrap of the Project Purple Podcast. Yeah.